You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. If you have a Bible, we're, we're going backwards this morning to Psalm 40. Uh, we'll spend a little bit of time there together. I'd love to say thanks for coming, but I realize you didn't have a choice. I guess I looked at the back of the bulletin and I'm like, I'm it. So sorry about that, um, but glad you're here. Um, we have been, I'll pray in a second, but we, we've been reading together or spending a few weeks together in the Psalms. And, uh, and again, the, there's no real logic behind why we're doing what we're doing. It's just I'm... I'm I'm cherry-picking some psalms that have been meaningful to, to me and our family over the past um, year. My, I have a son in here somewhere. Oh, he dipped out. Oh, there you are. Uh, he doesn't know this. I'm an embarrassed Jackson. But this is the, the, the psalm this morning is a kind of strange providence today in our family. Is the psalm his mother has picked out for him. So listen today. Yeah. Anyway, let me read Psalm 40, and then, um, well, let me pray, and then I'll read Psalm 40. So, Lord Jesus, bless us as we dive in today. Pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds to perceive the wonders that you have to teach us from your word. And, Lord, the Psalms, they're, they're just such a rich gift that you've left us, um, endless, Lord, in their, um, in their treasures, and their words, and the language, and the feelings that they offer to us, Lord, and, and a life lived before you. And I I pray this morning as we, we dive in that you'll open our hearts and our minds to the truths that you have for us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, all right, let me, let me read Psalm 40. And, and, and just so you know, we'll, we'll probably only do the first five verses today. That's my, that's my goal. And I think we have one more Sunday together, but I'm not, I'm not positive. Um, but if we don't get past verse 5, which we won't, um, read the rest of it later and it'll be fine. But here's, here's Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock. He made my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and they will put their trust in the Lord. Blessed. Now mark that word. Blessed is the man or the person who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, doesn't go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love or your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will preserve me forever. For evil has encompassed me beyond number. Iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails me. This is a roller coaster ride here throughout Psalm 40. 
Be pleased, verse 13, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. That's kind of fun in Hebrew, right? But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. But as for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Now, um, we'll sp- I want to say a few th- introductory comments about this psalm before we dive into it. But I mentioned to you last week, I think, in here or sometime together, the translation of the Psalms by Robert Alter that's come out, a big three volume. It was Robert Alter's life work, really, as a literary critic and a, and a, I wouldn't really call him a Bible scholar, but he's a Hebrew specialist, to do a long translation of the whole Bible. And you kind of released it piecemeal over time. Well, um, the, psalm, the Psalms he's done in a way that has... Um, an effect to feel like the Hebrew itself, which, as I mentioned last week, is much more like getting shot by a machine gun of hard sounds. It doesn't have the kind of lilting, beautiful quality of the King James Version or, or Miles Coverdale or, or even the ESV that I read from this morning. So can, let me just read to you the first um, five verses from Robert Alter's uh, translation. I ur- this is what he says. I urgently hoped for the Lord. He bent down toward me and he heard my voice he brought me up from the roiling pit from the thickest mire he set my feet on a crag made my steps firm he put my mouth in my mouth a new song praise to our god many see and fear and trust in the lord happy the man who puts in the lord his trust now this is interesting and does not turn to the sea monster gods or to the false idols. Many things you have done, you, O Lord, our Lord, your wonders, your plans for us, none can match you. I would tell and I would speak, but they are too numerous to recount. It's interesting here, um, the way in which Alter, and I'm, I'm, I'll talk a little bit about these sea monsters before I let you go today. But Psalm 40 is a psalm, and I will not refer to you two today, by the way. I, I, they have a song based on it, but I won't, I won't do it. Um, but Psalm 40 is technically what we call a psalm of thanksgiving. Now, let, let's talk a little bit about the psalms and the kinds of psalms that we have in the Bible. And for those of you who've done a class on the psalms, or you've read a book on the psalms, or you have your ESV or NIV study Bible on the psalms, wherever you're reading on this, the, the, the categories of the psalms are probably not new to you. They're familiar. There are all kinds of psalms that we have. Um, genre, I think, is the technical term that people will bandy about. So you have different genre of psalms. The psalm, for example, that we did last week, Psalm 91, would, would probably be titled an instruction psalm. 
Um, he who dwells in the shadow of the Almighty will abide under the shadow of his wing. That, that language there of he who does this, you have a, a movement throughout the psalm where the psalmist is instructing those who are listening in, in a certain mode of being. That this is what you need to know about God, and this is what you need to know about a life lived into that reality, and it's given to us in poetic form. There are Torah psalms, for example. Psalms that are, uh, psalms that are focused on the Torah. Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm, um, is, a, is in effect a, a Torah psalm, a psalm all the way from A to Z. Those of you who know that, that that's an acrostic. Um, there are praise psalms. Interestingly, um, praise is the technical term for the psalms in the Hebrew Bible. If so, in other words, if you opened your Hebrew Bible and you saw the title, it wouldn't say psalms. That's a kind of Christian term, actually. It would say tehalim which is the plural in Hebrew of praise, praises. Now that's an interesting title when you think about the whole of the Psalter and the Hebrew Bible is called praises. When you recognize that, when you dive into it, there are actually more of lament style psalms than there are praise psalms. Isn't that fascinating? So if, I, if we were to do a kind of a, a quantitative analysis, some sort of pie chart or bar chart graph, something like that, and you, we were to kind of set the psalms and, and graph them according to their, um, to their number, we'd be, I, it's surprising actually to find there are more lament psalms, psalms that we might call psalms of disorientation, than there are any other kind of psalm. And yet the psalmists and the Hebrew canon titles the book Praises. Isn't that interesting? Now, now I, I, I wasn't planning to talk about this, but I'm going to. Um, that's, to me, an indication of the imprint that's left on the whole of the Psalter from 1 to 150. When you move throughout the Psalms, through all of the vicissitudes of a life lived before God, whether it's lament, whether it's praise, whether it's thanksgiving, whether it's back to lament and supplication. By the way, Psalm 40 is one of these psalms that blends all kinds of genres together in such a way that if you kind of force a genre category on it, you will get frustrated about halfway through. Because all of a sudden, a thanksgiving psalm, I'll talk about that in a second, but a thanksgiving psalm turns now into a psalm of lament and disorientation, all within one psalm. Which I think is kind of indicative of the way in which the Psalter comes to us. We're in movement. Today it's praise. Tomorrow it's lament. The day after that it's thanksgiving. And next week it's more lament. That's followed by some praise and some thanksgiving. And, and oh, by the way, we need to instruct ourselves along the way as, as we move this life. With all of this big river of life moving, I would say, tyrannically toward one defined end. And that is a life of praise before the Lord. When you start getting into Psalm 143 and 44, and then 40, all the way to Psalm 150, all of a sudden, the drums and the trumpets and the timpanies, they begin to kind of come out in a way that's unplugged. And all the psalmist can talk about is praise. So what the psalms actually... And by the way, the early church fathers are so good on this. What the psalms are revealing to you and to me is the character of your life. It's, it's an imprint of the stages of your life before God on your way, if I can steal from Pilgrim's Progress here, to the celestial city. 
Because once you pass over, right, the river into the celestial city, it's just unending praise. That's what it is. For those of you who were forced back in the day to read through the Divine Comedy by Dante, right, kind of work through all those contos, you know, ooh, this is scary stuff, and in the in the inferno, and then you go to the Purgatorio, that part is a Protestant, always makes me sweat a little bit. And then, then we get to the Paradiso, and like, okay, now I'm, I'm into this. And you, for those of you who remember this back from your school days, as, as um, Dante is on his way closer toward the actual throne of God himself, all of a sudden he looks to the side and Beatrice is gone. She's not, his guide is no longer with him. So wisdom is left and he begins to hear a music that's strange. And if, I, if I'm remembering this correctly, Dante says something to the effect of, and the closer that I got to the throne, the music and the sounds that I heard were sounds that I can't communicate in poetic form or in Italian verse. I can't do it. It's, it's something other. And that's what the whole of the Psalter is moving you toward. It's moving you toward that something other. And that's where speech begins to fail us. And silence properly takes over, as Psalm 40 will teach us as well. So these, all these genres that you have, individual genres and psalms, genres that bleed into one another in one particular psalm, all of that is showing you a kind of mirror presentation of the character of your life which cannot be anticipated. I mean, this is one of the things that I think we all appreciate about the future, is that we just don't quite know how it's going to work out, right? We can make our predictions, um, but the Lord is the one who is ordering these things toward His own end. And in the middle of all of that ordering and disordering, the Psalms come in and provide you language. Here's some words for you in this moment. You might not be in that moment right now, but when you're in that moment, here are some words for you. And when you get into that moment, here's some words for you as well. So Psalm 40, this psalm here, is a thanksgiving psalm. And let me tell you a little bit about what I think the genre of a thanksgiving psalm is. When you have a praise, you're praising God directly. When you have a lament, you're in the middle of a crisis. So can I use the, I'll use the analogy of a swimming pool. Um, Lament psalms are psalms that are prayed when you are uh, drowning in the deep end of the pool. In other words, you, you, you are in the mess at that moment in time. You are in trouble. And, and the language that the Bible often uses of that is, and we'll see it here in Psalm 40, the pit going down to Sheol. It's the language of the dead. We actually heard that, that um, uh, the opposite of Sheol in the, in the last song that we sang together in church this morning. Shalom. Right? So we pray for shalom. Shalom, wholeness, is the opposite of Sheol, which is the place of disorder and death, the absence of God. And interestingly, the psalmist operates in such a way that the line between life and death is one that's actually somewhat opaque and fuzzy. See, we live in the modern world with very hard categories, although I, I know we have doctors in the room, so I realize this is complicated. But we live in a kind of a hard world between you're either alive or, or, or you're dead, right? Now, but the Bible will speak about someone who's struggling with financial distress, and it will use the language of living death. Someone that their, their best friend has betrayed them, uh, it's a living death. 
someone that's been that is dealing with a disease that ails them and follows them it's as if they're walking in a living death there can be people in the bible that are living in sheol though they're walking in the land of the living that's why the bible search the psalms will use sheol language the pit language you brought me up from the grave language all of that's being used to describe the complexity of life and that kind of opaque character that moves between life and death and so here you have the psalmist in these Thanksgiving psalms that was drowning in the deep end of the pool, but is now standing outside the pool. This is the image that I have in my own mind. When you say Psalm 40, you're standing out. You were just drowning about five minutes ago, but someone tossed you a buoy. You're now standing on the, do- on the dock or the deck right by the pool. You're dripping wet, but you're safe. You're not drowning anymore. And these are the words that God gives us in those moments. Those moments when I thought this was the end. Or I thought this situation was unsalvageable. Or I thought this relationship was broken permanently. And yet God in His mercy does what God has done in this moment. He's taken something that appeared to me to be dead and he's made it alive again, which is just his character to do that. It's why we end all of our confessions of faith believing in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And so here you have the psalmist now dripping wet on the far side of the pool in a situation that appeared to him to be death, but now he's been raised back to life again. And these are his words, dripping wet. I waited patiently for the Lord. Now, I just want to work through this sort of bit by bit with you and phrase by phrase as we work through these first five verses. I waited patiently for the Lord. Um, if, if, if I could be a little pedantic here with the way in which the Hebrew of this is actually constructed. Um, but the, the, the I waited patiently, I think could be translated, I really, really waited. In other words, in the Hebrew, it's two different verbal forms of the same root verb. That makes sense? So we, the, the English translations, beautifully, I think, have added this patiently to kind of up the ante. I didn't just wait. I waited patiently. Um, but really, it's, um, I really, really waited on the Lord. And this is an interesting phenomenon that you will find in the Bible, especially in the Psalms. Say Psalm 63. Um, I wait, my soul waits on God and God alone. It's an interesting phenomenon to see in the Bible the object of the waiting itself that the psalmist will describe in his prayers before the Lord. I'm waiting. And what am I waiting on? I'm waiting on the Lord. This is a definition that I ran across on the term waiting. It's a restlessness and a waiting on something that's not occurred yet. And why I think this phenomenon is so fascinating is that's not, I don't think it's the way in which we normally, in our sort of mode of discourse, talk about waiting. We we, we wait on, let's say the doctor said, uh, that, that, that scan came back a little funny. We're going to need to do some results on, do some tests on that. And, you know, we'll talk to you in seven days. What is it that you're waiting on in that seven day period? You're waiting on the results of the test. 
I'm re- that's what I'm waiting on. I'm waiting on the results. Or I'm waiting on the call from my child that they arrived at their destination safely. In other words, it's the, it's the resolution to the problem itself that we tend to wait on, I think, in, in our normal use of that term. And yet, as you turn page after page in the Psalms, that's not the language of the psalmist. The psalmist here in Psalm 40 doesn't tell us the events of his life that led him to be flailing in the deep end of the pool. We don't get that. He just tells us he was flailing, that he was waiting, and he was waiting patiently on the Lord. That's the object of the waiting. My restlessness in this moment is a restlessness with God. And that's it's kind of scary, actually. <laughs> And, and doesn't always seem to co- doesn't always come across in the Bible in a, in a way that we might identify as immediately pious or faithful. I mean, Job, for example, in the book of Job, is waiting on the Lord as well, and he does so in ways that cause all of us to sweat as we move through Job three and following, because God is not acting according to His normal mode of being with me, and I'm waiting on Him to show up. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing now with what the medieval mystics would call the dark night of the soul, and the dark night of the soul is a moment that I'm waiting for the Lord to appear again and for His face to shine on me. So I think this is a, a huge thing. I mean, I, I think about this as a parent, think about it as somebody who's in, in a church, think about it with students. What is it that I'm actually and ultimately waiting on in the moments of disquiet or disorder or flailing in the deep end of the pool? In those in-between moments, which I, if you're like me, those are the worst moments, are the in-between moments. And the psalmist is providing for you and for me language. What we're ultimately waiting on is the Lord. We're putting our restlessness onto Him. And we're talking to Him about that in the process as we await whatever it is, the circumstance that we we are experiencing. And notice what he does here. I waited for the Lord, and there's a beautiful progression. He inclined... In other words, he turned his ear toward me. Think about it this way. God's posture adjusted toward me in my praying. Isn't that beautiful? He inclined. He heard my cry. And then he drew me up from the pit of destruction, miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock. All of this language here, inclining, hearing, delivering, So that you have God's posture moving, His ears opening, and then He moves toward action itself. All of this language right here is the language of the Exodus that we read in Exodus chapter 2. When when the cry of the people... So so this is Psalm, the psalmist entering into the history of his own people. And and there's a lot to think about here. When the psalmist is talking here about his own particular problem, his own pit of destruction, which again, we don't quite know what that is. The psalmist is entering into, from his language, think about this, a biblical pattern of suffering. He's entering into the pattern of his fathers before him. Um, I'm, I'm crying out to God in my distress. He's, I'm waiting on him to incline, to lean in, to hear, and then to deliver, knowing that there's not any help to be found anywhere else, ultimately and finally. 
So this language here that the psalmist is using is the language of the Exodus event itself, as if the psalmist is, is participating and is calling to mind events from the past that now provide for him a narrative to live into. Isn't that interesting? And you find this throughout all the Bible, these patterns, these types that occur again and again and again, as if these are a way for you to walk into. He heard my, my cry, he, set, uh, he, he inclined, he heard, he drew me up out of the pit of the destruction. And then notice verse 3, this is rather beautiful. He put um, a new song in my mouth. So he set me on a rock, and now he's put a new song in my mouth. And the way in which it says here in the ESV, um, a song of praise to our God. Now, again, the language here is a language of God's action and our response. But it's interesting, isn't it, that even our response is a gift that's given to us by God. It's a beautiful language here. Um, he inclined, he heard, he delivered, he set my feet on something secure, on a rock. And then what does he do as well? Then he fills my mouth with praises for him. He fills my mouth with a new song, a song of praise, a song of thanksgiving. That's the response that humans bring to God when God shows him his, act of th- uh, his, his acts of salvation and deliverance. And I, I know you know this because you're all Anglican types around here, but that logic shapes our liturgy. That logic shapes what we just did together about 35, 40 minutes ago. As you move from confession, inclining his ear, opening our mouths, open my mouth and my lips shall proclaim your praise. What's the reaction to the forgiveness and the deliverance of God? What do humans do in response to that? Praise and thanksgiving and gratitude. That's the sacrifice that we offer. It's not a blood sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving that's offered up to the Lord in response to the kindness of what He's done um, for you and for me. Praise. What verses 1 through 3 present in my own sort of reading on this here, just kind of trying to reflect on this with you all, is what a God-infused existence looks like. What does it look like to live into the reality of God's being in every moment of our existence, knowing that we don't? Knowing that so many, myself included, often live as practical atheists. I mean, we we do that. But as we're drawn back in, a life that's lived infused with the reality of God's presence from beginning to end that envelops our day, morning and night, is a life that's marked by praise. Can I give you a little... Um, psalmist bumper sticker. If the, psalm, if the psalmist sold bumper stickers um, outside the temple, um, one of them would be, uh, to praise is to live, and to live is to praise. In other words, worshiping the Lord, responding to Him in thanksgiving, um, is not a, merely a Sunday morning activity. In fact, The Sunday morning activity of gathering us together corporately is in a sense our reorientation back to reality as it truly is. Knowing that during the week we kind of go all over the place, but when we come back together, we're reoriented back to reality as it truly is. And what's true reality? That God is 
I mean, I get seized by this, and I, you know, I hope not, not necessarily in a panic, but there are moments when I'm, I, I, I feel the force of, if, we really, if I really believe what I confess to be true, think <laughs> about what we confess in the Apostles' Creed, if we really believe that that stuff is true, and not just part of our religious speech together that we do corporately as some collective exercise, but we really believe that those things are true, then if they are true, they encompass all of reality, all of existence. Not just the little part here or the Sunday or the morning prayer. It's all of it. He's put a new song in my mouth. To praise is to live and to live is to praise. It envelops the whole of our existence as we prayed this morning together, not only to praise Him with our lips, but also with our, with our lives. Well, I'll, let's look at these last a couple of verses together. Verse 4 and 5 is a response to these first three verses. That, in a sense, ups the ante, if, we, if, you, if you will. Blessed is the one who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Now, if you notice that language here, blessed is the man, um, that's a term that if you spent time in the Psalms, your ears probably uh, 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 pique some interest. What does it mean to be blessed? This, by the way, eshray is the, the Hebrew term. This is the first word of the Psalms. Psalm 1, verse 1, right? How blessed. Now, we say how in the English, but in the, in the, in the Hebrew version, it's eshray ha'ish. How blessed is the man um, who does not walk, stand, sit with the ungodly. So this term of blessedness is a really important term to, to kind of press into. What does it mean to be blessed? To be, I mean, one way of translating this is happiness. It's the question that has permeated, especially at least the Western intellectual tradition, all the way back to the Greeks before Jesus, raising the question, what does it really mean to be happy? Where is true happiness to be found? And of course, Aristotle offers his famous Nicomachean ethics to give you um, some sort of exercise in where true happiness is to be found. It's to be found within in intellectual and moral virtue. And how do you habituate yourself into virtue? Well, you don't go to extremes. You kind of find a middle and you stay there. I mean, you, you remember that from your school days. Well, the Bible raises this question as well. What does it mean to be genuinely happy? It's the first question right out. And Psalm 1-1 tells you to be blessed... Um, to use the language of the ironic blessing, to have the smile of God on your life, that's what we pray for ourselves and our children, that His grace would shine on us. The blessed person, the person that lives into true human flourishing, that's a question worth raising and seeing. What does the, where do the Psalms talk about this? Well, so um, I wrote these out for you. Psalm 1, verse 1, the blessed person, the happy person, the person that's living into shalom, in Psalm 1, delights in God's Word. In Psalm 2, they find a refuge in God and God alone. In Psalm 32, verse 1, the blessed person is the one who, listen to this, who knows that his or her sins are forgiven. In Psalm chapter 34, verse 8, we see Eshray or blessed again. And it's back to the refuge language of Psalm 2. And then here when we come to Psalm chapter 40, verse 4, we see the blessed language again. Blessed is the one who makes the Lord his trust. 
Where is true happiness to be found in Psalm 40 verse 5? How, how does one live into the blessed state? And the answer is, those who put their trust in the Lord. It's a recurrent theme. It goes back to Psalm 91 that we were with last week. What are, what are the two poles that we're working through here as we navigate life? Fear or trust? You're moving between them, knowing that we'll, because we're human and we're sinners to so the day we die, we'll never settle in one place. That's the dynamism of a life lived before God. As you're orienting yourself by God's Spirit again and again, back toward a place of trust. Alright, I'm finding my, myself in a place of fear, moving back toward trust. Going to fear again, moving toward trust. How blessed is the person who trusts in the Lord. And the opposite, the counterfeit measures are found here as well. They do not turn to the proud. They do not go astray after a lie. Now this is interesting because this is the place where Robert Alter's translation says they do not go after the Rahav, uh, the dragon, uh, the sea monster. Um, and then the next word, going after the lie, that's another Hebrew term that's just tricky from a philological standpoint. Like not, not quite sure what the lie is that we're talking about here. And that's why Robert Alter's translation says they don't put their trust in the sea monster and they don't put their trust in false idols. Now, I, don't, I, don't, I, I have to think some more about this. I don't mind thinking out loud a little bit, but I have to, I'm not settled on how one best you know, should land on what these terms are doing here. But we know we're dealing with poetry. We know we're dealing with heightened imagery. It's interesting that in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah can use the sea monster language, the Rahav. And by the way, um, this goes back to Egypt and then ancient Canaanite mythology as well. We, we think in very different terms. I mean, I know a lot of you are going to go to the beach. I mean... You're all Christians because you're here today, but the rest who are down at the beach, you know, they're, they, they, they're having a nice holiday at the sea and maybe like to go deep sea fishing or something like that. People from the ancient world were reluctant to go out onto the deep sea. Um, there, there's a reason why when Jonah is on the deep sea, all of them immediately in the middle of that storm begin to cry out to their gods. Because they know that when you get onto the deep sea, dragons live out there. Um, the sea monster, the Rahab, the Rahav, she's out there. Uh, the, Bab the Babylonians referred to the Rahab as the, as the Tiamat. Tiamat was the great, evil, sinister um, god of the, of the underworld, of the, of the primordial chaos. My point is, you don't want to have an encounter. Um, with Rahav or Tiamat or Leviathan. Th these are ancient dragon figures that roamed in the sea and you didn't want to encounter them. And it's interesting that in Isaiah, the prophet can use the Rahav to describe Egypt or any other foreign adversary in a kind of subversive political way. So is the psalmist here talking about the sea monster or the dragon out there? I don't know. It could be that the, that the psalmist here is being subversive. It could be that the psalmist is using these images to talk about, but you know who I'm really talking about here with the Rahav. Um, and then when you go off onto the next line, talking about the lie, now that language is often used to describe false idols. So do you see the countermeasure? The countermeasure is, blessed are those who put their whole reliance a sense of confident trust 
on the Lord and they don't hedge their religious or their political bets on something else. That's where I think the psalmist is going. Because what you find in ancient Israel, especially in the northern kingdom, but you find it in Judah as well, is that, of course, many, many people on the street were happy to go and do their sacrifice and do their temple thing, but they don't mind mixing in there a little bit of Baal as well, um, and maybe a little bit of Asherah. Matter of fact, they found in archaeological digs in the northern part of Israel um, uh, um, icons representing Yahweh, the God of Israel, with his wife, Asherah, right? Who's the, the queen of the, of the, of the underworld. Um, so even in the northern kingdom, and, and people are like, ah, they found that. So, so, well, the prophets existed and were upset for reasons. And it's like, I mean, they, 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 the, the whole don't worship other gods thing, don't turn to other idols. The prophets were upset about that because it was really happening. And now you have these sort of archaeological finds showing Yahweh with his consort, his wife. I mean, you have these things here. And here the psalmist is saying, don't hedge your bets religiously. Um, the first commandment is the whole kit and caboodle. It's the commandment upon which all the other ones either rise or fall. If you don't get, don't have any other gods but me, if you don't get that one, then all the rest of it fails in comparison. I think, by the way, this is why when the psalmist moves in the next few verses into a more prophetic mode of speech, God doesn't, doesn't just want your sacrifices. He doesn't want your religious activity. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. I think, again, he's leaning into that dynamic. He doesn't want half measures. He doesn't want your religious checking off of the boxes. If, if that's what you're doing, in effect, the psalmist is saying, keep it. Because the first commandment says, God and God alone, no others. That's the commandment upon which all others are built. And by the way, I think that's one of the reasons why someone like David could say in the Psalms, Lord, you know that I'm righteous. I mean, that, that's, you've read that in Psalms, right? I mean, you read that as a good Protestant, me too, and you, and you begin to sweat. Whoever claims publicly that they are righteous. <laughs> David's not claiming in the Psalms that he is sinless. I mean, you've read enough of Kings to know. I mean, the poor guy ends his life with a virgin in his bed. I mean, it's, uh, David's not a model for much of anything. I'll just to be honest with you. But when it came to his sole commitment to the Lord and the Lord alone, he did not follow on the path of his son Solomon or his grandson Jeroboam. It was the Lord and the Lord alone. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. You shall love him with all your heart, all your soul, and all of your mind. It's the heart and soul of what God wants from his people, exclusive loyalty. Even You might be surprised, even in the Old Testament, God does not expect you to cross every T and dot every I. What he expects from you is complete loyalty to him and a turning to him alone. And that's what he's telling you here in Psalm 40, verses 4 and 5. Blessed are those whose soul and entire trust is the Lord. And the opposite of are those who are countermeasuring that or hedging their religious bets by sprinkling in some other things just in case that whole Christianity thing doesn't work out. Or just in case that whole God, the God of Israel and God alone thing isn't quite true. Just in case the whole Apostles Nicene Creed thing is, I'll, I'll do that as part of my, of my social identity. But the, the Psalms like this, this is everything. This is one of the reasons why I think the Apostle Paul will say something to the effect of, if the resurrection of the dead is not real, then our religious activities mean nothing. This has got to be founded on something that's true and that's real. 
So this is where the psalmist leaves us. He leaves us in a blessed state, a happy state, knowing that the one who's blessed puts his trust in the Lord. I so badly want that to be indicative of my life. I'm sure you do as well. And then what's the response to this? Verse 5 fills it out. You've just done so many wondrous deeds. Isn't that beautiful? I'm going to recount the things of the Lord. You've done so many things. And I'm going to... What's the response? I'm going to proclaim this. I'm not going to be silent about what you have done. And yet at the same time, my words cannot live up to the glory and the wonder of what you have done. Nothing compares with you. So this is where this is kind of a beautiful move here. Just these first five verses, the psalmist tells us that I was drowning, waiting, really waiting on the Lord. And, and, and He delivered me. He showed up. He inclined. He heard. He set my feet on a rock. He put a new song in my mouth. He opened my lips in praise to Him. And I know that the person that lives into the gratitude of the existence and the beauty of God's grace to us shown in Jesus, what they do is they live into a blessed state. That's where true happiness is to be found, knowing that I'm safe with Him and He's delivered me. And the response to that is proclamation. We share it. We tell it. Knowing that our proclamation is not sufficient to the glory of what God has actually done for us in His Son and in the world. So Lord, I pray that You will let these psalms continually shape us, shape our speech, shape our, our beliefs, shape, Lord, our praise, draw us into the truth. Lord, I pray that You'll protect us from our tendency to go our own way and to just maybe think a little bit about the Rahav or, or the lies that are out there. Um, Lord, I pray that you'll let our soul confidence be in you and in you alone. Bless these friends who are here. I don't know where they are, Lord, in their journey through the Psalms, whether they're in lamentation, whether they're in the deep end of the pool, whether, on the, whether they're now on the side of the pool or whether they're praising you. I pray, O oh God, that you will let these Psalms be words for them, words of life, your instruction um, for reorienting ourselves again and again by your grace and your spirit to the truth. We waited patiently for the Lord, and He set our feet on a rock. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.